fit to grant us health, to give us the mindset and the desire to be in a place such as this one today, to offer our worship unto Him, and to serve Him in delight as His Word would instruct and set before us today. I know that it has already been mentioned, there are a number of names on our sick list and several folks who would normally wish to be with us or not today due to that particular effect. And we certainly would pray very much that their particular matters will soon allow them to be very quickly back with us. As we come to our lesson today, it certainly would be fair to comment about the strongest of the worded New Testament commandments. And you might initially wonder what that might be. This opening slide will simply perhaps question us by noting the following matters. We would all agree there are so many commandments to be found within the pages of the New Testament. And in fact, you and I rejoice in the consideration of our understanding of them and our implementation of them. Commandments like 2 Peter 1 verses 5 and following. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and knowledge and temperance, and patience, and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and charity. And you'll notice that was worded like a commandment. And you and I, in fact, thrill at the thought of maturing so that we, in fact, exhibit them. But what about texts like 2 John 5? Love one another. Brother Cale led us in prayer earlier today in which he made mention of that truth. And yet, that assertion is set before us in such plainness. In Romans 12, verse 21, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, that's powerfully worded, and you and I cannot mistake the command essence of it. It might well be, though, I could still ask, among the various verses you and I encounter in the New Testament pages, amongst the character of all 260 chapters, what is the most strongly worded of the commands that are presented to us? May I offer you the thought that today, why don't we devote a few moments to not only give thought to that text that we had read earlier, but also to reflect upon the urgency and the insistence, the plainness of that particular commandment. To do that, could I make mention that that text that was read was 2 Thessalonians 3, verse number 6. And although we shall revisit that text shortly and give a rather dramatic attention to it, I think we would be well served by noting the background that led the Apostle Paul in earnestness to make some of those comments that he made. The church at Thessalonica. In fact, on Wednesday evenings, we have been giving our attention to a very systematic consideration of the verses of, of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And so this particular matter will dovetail and harmonize with that. But isn't it true the church at Thessalonica had some misunderstandings about the second coming of Christ? Some of them were under the impression that that second coming was, in fact, very, very soon to happen. So soon, in fact, that they no longer saw the necessity of working. And so some of them quit their jobs. Others of them had arrived at the point that in the idleness that followed from that, they began to do things that were not good. They acted like busybodies, meddling in other people's affairs and businesses, and, you know, doing those sort of things that aren't healthy and appropriate usages of time. It was in that kind of circumstance that Paul directed these comments in First and Second Thessalonians. And he directly pointed out in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 4, he says, We have confidence 
in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. Paul was very excited and he was also very confident that they, upon hearing these instructions, that they would change their behavior and that they would obey those commands that God was giving. In particular, Paul would be quick to say to them, I never said that Jesus' second coming was going to happen immediately. In fact, in chapter 2 of this book, he says, the man of sin will have to come before the actual second coming of our Lord. And so to those brethren of that day, their minds needed to be put at ease that what they had been led to believe, their misunderstandings were not correct. It might well be, though, that that brings us to that verse number 6, which it would seem is the strongest worded command in all the New Testament. And it reads like this. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. And the reason which it would seem that that fits that bill is some of the comments that you and I can now make relative to it. And I've shared them with you at the bottom of that present slide. First of all, you notice that Paul begins by saying, We command you. There's no misunderstanding about the urgency and the authority in which this matter is stated. We command you, but then he even adds this description. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It would have been enough and rather powerful even upon the assertion of we command you, but he adds this powerful presentation, this description, in the name of, the, of, of in fact, Jesus Christ. It is, with that noted, could I call your attention to some of the other matters connected to the authority of the name of Christ? In Acts chapter 3, verse 16, you might recall that there was a lame man that was laid at the beautiful gate of the temple. And on that occasion, when Peter and John were making their entrance, Peter made this statement. That this man, that, 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 that in fact the name of Christ, through faith in his name, is what has made this man whole. And so isn't it true that the very name of Christ on that occasion brought the very character of the healing of this lame man and the urgency connected to the power seen in that event? The name of Christ. Maybe that reminds us of Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And so one more time, the name of Christ is a rather powerful thought as a foundation for consideration of action in light of the Lord's commands. As you revisit verse number 6, Paul has thus begun that verse by saying, We command you, and he has added to the authority by linking it to the name of Christ. And now we ask, What command did he give? That ye withdraw yourselves. Withdraw yourselves. And now, as Paul makes mention of this, you and I have already learned that there were some in the Thessalonian church that had lapsed into idleness, lapsed into, in fact, being a busybody, being given to gossip and other things like that. And Paul says, look, those in Christ are not to behave this way. And if a person won't repent of this, you've got to withdraw yourself from them. This next slide will take us at least a little further in our description of this. 
because it invites us to consider what does this word withdraw even mean? The Holy Spirit of God thus selected its usage in that ancient Greek text. That word withdraw literally means to keep away from somebody or to stay aloof from them. To stay away from somebody. To be a recognized person of distance in light of the choice that that other person is making. Now, these particular instructions are such that there are other places that help us appreciate the matter that's being presented. In fact, in this very same chapter in which you and I are now reading, may I direct your attention to verse 14. The Holy Spirit directing Paul to make these statements. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Well, here you'll notice again the commandment version, have no company with him. There is to remain a social distance between this person and us, between those who are withdrawing. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, and of course continuing to verse 17, there's another prescription wherein you may recall if a brother has wronged you or me, we're first to approach that brother and bring that matter to his or her attention. If they will repent, we've gained our brother. But if not, we take a couple of witnesses with us and again encourage this person. One more time, if that person will repent, we've gained a brother. But if not, we bring it before the church. And finally, if there's still no repentance, let that person be as a publican and a heathen. There's to be a recognized separation, a withdrawal, if you please. On that slide, could I remind each of us that one of the beautiful bases of this whole idea is the impressiveness of the relationship that is to be maintained in the church of our Lord. Brethren love each other. They genuinely love each other. And they're there to encourage and support and enjoy mutual fellowship one with another. In 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7, we are told we enjoy fellowship with God, but we're also told, in verse number 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. You and I enjoy a fellowship that's rich, that's profound, that's powerful, that is not based on the urgency in matters connected to things physical. It's etched in the blood of the Lord. And as such, we highly regard that fellowship. For after all, we're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. It is then an interesting matter to notice that that kind of fellowship leads us to notice those in Christ are not subject to that kind of condemnation we read about in so many verses. In Romans 8, verse number 1, in fact, we read there that those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, there is no condemnation for them. Their sins are forgiven. And they walk in a way blessedly approved by the God of heaven and enjoy a fellowship with God and with one another. They do occupy that place that we recognize as the church of our Lord. Not only all of that, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, verse 15. And so this group of people, 
they thrill at the thought of the commands of the Lord and they joyously desire to keep them. That kind of commandment and that kind of description certainly brings us to the hope of the Christian. 1 Peter 1 verses 3, 4, and 5 highlight that your hope and mine is none other than that which is in heaven. The hope, you see, of that eternal reward and abode that rests in that fair land beyond this one. You see, this fellowship then is special and it's rich. And it also has obligation. Because on this next slide, you'll begin to notice, we can now ask the question. When Paul then gave the order through the agency of the Holy Spirit to withdraw fellowship, how does one do this? And how does a congregation accomplish this? Some of the matters on this slide will help us revisit, to reconsider, to readdress some of these issues, but it certainly would fairly begin like this. If the church were subject to you and to me, it's almost certain we would do things differently. It's almost certain we'd make different choices and we would in fact make declarations that would have a different tone and a different perhaps outcome. But the fact is the church is not yours and it's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. And so it's what He says is what's important. It's what He says that's a matter of, of consideration for you and me. And He says this. And thus, how do we accomplish this? First of all, this matter of withdrawing fellowship isn't pleasant. It's not fun. It's not a matter that is a delightful thing, at least in its own right. I think all of us would agree that discipline, at least as far as I've ever experienced it, it's not pleasant. When dad and mom or my grandparents had to take care of that duty, it wasn't fun for me. Perhaps it wasn't fun for you either when you, of course, had to deal with that. But you see, discipline is done out of the consideration of what is in the long run that which is better. My behavior needed to be changed. My perspective needed to be altered. And the seat of my pants suffered because of it. But you see, because of that, they deemed it important to act in a way that was recognized as discipline and to set before me the understanding of this better way that, oh, I might not see it at the time. It really was, in the long run, far, far better. In many ways, something like that could be said for discipline within the confines of the Lord's congregation. In Proverbs 13, 24, to highlight that, those who spare the rod will spoil the child. It's just that simple. Now, to not spare the rod, again, is not fun. And any parent who's ever had to do that, you know it isn't pleasant to do that to your child, but you know, because God said it, that it's needful, that it's important, and that the outcome will be that which is better. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and following, we have a New Testament example of this withdrawing of fellowship. We see Paul's comments relative to it. You and I might begin by noting the withdrawal of fellowship is arguably the single greatest act of love that any congregation could extend toward a wayward child of God. To this person who to this point has exhibited impenitence, 
when that church withdraws fellowship, the final act of sacrificial love in an effort to save that person's soul. I say that because of these verses. Why does a church do this? Would you notice with me the language of 1 Corinthians 5, verses 5 and 6? You notice there that the Apostle Paul, in directing comments to the Corinthian congregation, pointed out to them the reasons as to why this was to be done, and Paul worded it with the efforts of the Holy Spirit this way, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Reason number one, that this person might be saved on the day of judgment. That this set of choices and this lifestyle that this person has at this point decided is not only unhealthy, but it's ungodly. And as such, it will bring the eternal consequences of the judgment of God. And so we'll withdraw fellowship in the hopes that they will come to their senses, that they'll recognize what they've lost in terms of fellowship with the church, and they'll understand the Lord's statement regarding their behavior. But that isn't the only reason. Look at the next verse. Verse 6. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? If this behavior is allowed to go on unchecked, unconsidered, it will not only lead to that person's continuation in it most likely, but there will be others that will be influenced by it as well. There will be others who, in fact, will begin to think along those lines. He did it. Nothing happened. She did it. Nothing happened. And although that's not consistent with the Bible, the church didn't do anything, you begin to see that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And thus, two reasons. One, to save that person's soul. Hopefully they will recognize the urgency of the situation. But number two, to safeguard the purity of the church. The church is a pure organization by way of which the Lord established it. In Ephesians 5, 27, without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing. And so it is that it should be our desire to maintain the church with that kind of purity and that kind of character. And thus to revisit what Paul had to say to this Thessalonian church. Withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not according to the tradition which they have received. The first thing that might be highlighted is this. A congregation does not withdraw from a person simply because they sin. If so, every one of us would be subjects for withdrawal. Because do we not read in Romans 3, 23, All have seen and come short of the glory of God. And in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, If any man say he has no sin, he's a liar, and the truth isn't in him. Everybody is guilty of some element of sin. You don't withdraw from someone just because there's sin. You withdraw from someone because there's no repentance. If this person is such that the concept has been brought before them and they see the Scriptures and they understand what the teaching is, but they intend to continue in exactly what has already been going on. That's when the church may have to end up withdrawing fellowship because there's no repentance. 
There's no change in behavior. There's no desire to come back to the Lord. I wrote that on the slide as you close that slide this way. To those thus who have come to live in a habitual way of life, but who extend no repentance, no, no idea of changing mind, coming back to the Lord, no regard for the Lord's authority in the Word of God, it is to those people, to those individuals wherein a withdrawal of fellowship may eventually come to be needful. At this point, could we highlight withdrawal of fellowship is not what happens as the first step. As we noted already, you go to this person in an individual way and you instruct, you teach, you bring the Word of God before them, and then you're so hopeful that there will be repentance. If there isn't, you take some witnesses and you have additional conversation. You share with them the urgency of the decisions they're making and what that shall mean for their eternal welfare. If there is still no repentance, you bring it before the church so that a group of people can pray about it. They can each keep this person in prayer. They can each make conversation with him or her about the foolishness of their choice and how that it's so hurtful. But if the person still will not repent, the final act is the, is the withdrawal of fellowship. You'll notice on that slide that's before us, we do have texts like 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11 that allows us to notice a listing of sins which the Holy Spirit says would be appropriate ones that might well prompt the withdrawal of fellowship. Let's, look, let's just read the list and make some conversations about them. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such an one, know not to eat. Now maybe a few observations could be in order, but as Paul, through the direction of the Holy Spirit, made this observation, you'll notice he's listed several behaviors that would be appropriate ones that would prompt a congregation ultimately to withdraw from them. And the first one was fornication. If a brother in Christ, though at a time faithful, comes to move into a lifestyle that's given to fornication, to sexual immorality, and that person will not repent, that person intends to continue in this style of life, then that congregation certainly would be obligated to withdraw fellowship from this person. But then Paul makes mention of a covetous person. If it comes to be recognized that this person who once was a faithful Christian but now is given to a wholesome pursuit only of matters described as covetousness, loving something else more than God, be it money, fame, notoriety, prestige, power, whatever it may be, you realize that if that person won't repent, one more time, Paul says, you've got to have no company with that person. Thirdly, he makes mention of idolater. This person who begins in this present day to honor and regard and in essence offer a directive of wholesome entirety of life to something other than God. 
you and I know that to those that are Christians, we must seek the kingdom first. Matthew 6, 33. And you notice here, some person has made a, a, a different choice to serve something else ultimately. The next one in the list is a railer. Now that's perhaps an unusual term. What is a railer? A railer is a person who uses abusive speech in interactions with others and does this habitually. May I say that each of us as Christians have to watch our language. May we not be given to the regular and habitual use of abusive language. If so, we are a railer. And our elders would have every obligation to, to check us or have conversation with us about that. Beyond that is a drunkard. No Christian can be given to the social consumption of alcoholic beverages. And again, that could be appropriate fodder, a basis for the withdrawal of fellowship. Finally, an extortioner. Somebody who acts by way of sneakery, trickery, to act as an embezzler. Paul says that too. If a person won't repent and won't change that behavior, then ultimately the church must withdraw fellowship. Isn't it interesting in light of a list like that, I could add one more because you know Paul's language. And such and one. The New Testament describes other behaviors, say in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, that could also be serious consideration. But all the while, doesn't it remind us that once the church withdraws fellowship, it is thus our intent to keep not company with this person. And we do it because we love them. We do it because we care about their soul. And we want them to appreciate what it is that they have missed and what God has said about their current choices in life. Verse number 11 again says, Not to eat with them. We may not share a social meal with them. We may not have that kind of communal organization with them because we want them to understand we care about them. So much so that we elevate the Word of God above our social friendship with them. It might well be that we could highlight those next thoughts as well. Might we keep in mind withdrawal does not make a person lost. They're already lost. That's why we withdraw fellowship from them. They're lost and they're impenitent in being lost. The withdrawing of fellowship does not make them lost. They are already in that condition. The withdrawal of fellowship rather is a directed statement on the part of this group of people that in their love they will not support those choices and decisions that this, that this person has made and that they want him or her to know that we do not condone it, we do not approve it, and neither does God. And we so much urge you to change. We'll be here to support you in change. We will pray for you in change. We will be, be here to encourage you in change, but we cannot endorse what you're currently doing. It is in that regard. What does this person need to do to be right with God? Suppose the church has withdrawn fellowship from someone. What does that person need to do? Not one single thing before the church withdrew from them. They still have to repent, and they still have to confess those sins. That's it. In other words, the withdrawal doesn't change what they must do in order to be right with the God of heaven. 
Didn't Jesus say in Luke 13, 3, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And Paul echoed it in Acts 17, 30 and 31, that the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. In the circumstances before us in this present description, we notice God wants all men to repent. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. And isn't it interesting in that light that we find that sweet description of confession set before us in verses like James 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It certainly is the case that as you and I think about the withdrawing of, of fellowship, there's perhaps a verse near the end of that 2 Thessalonians 3 that still would be a matter of concern and certainly a matter of interest. May I direct your attention to verse number 15 of that chapter. Let me start reading in verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle. So notice it's our desire for one and all by the teaching of the word of God to be obedient to it. But as we have been describing, here's a person who chooses not to be obedient. It now says, for you and I to have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. You see, it's our goal and desire that in the withdrawal of fellowship, this person might feel an element of shame, an element of disgrace concerning the choices that have been made, the particular pursuits that have been made note in life. But then verse 15 says this, Count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So we certainly would never cease to pray for this person. Even though the person may continue in impenitence and continue to have the same lifestyle that prompted the, the withdrawal of the fellowship, we certainly still realize he's a wayward person of God, a wayward brother, not saved in his current state. The considerations of a verse like that one do remind us as you close that slide to perhaps think of it in yet one additional way. The reason that fellowship is withdrawn is not due to spite. It's not to get even. It's not because of vengeance. It's not because we're sorrowful in particular for what he or she may well have done to you or me personally. We do it for the reasons we've highlighted today. Because that person's lost. And as a wayward child of God, the latter end with him will be worse than the beginning, according to 2 Peter 2, verses 18 to 22. We do it because we love that person. We want that person to be saved. We want him or her to know the fellowship we enjoy with God. And in the circumstances that currently prevail, the person is not in that situation. Tragically and sadly, the person has come under the clutches of the devil. It is the devil who controls this person at the given moment. And the church finally has to make a statement of withdrawing its fellowship. That sadness is perhaps echoed like this. Oh, how excited and joyful and a time of celebration it would be if and when the person repents and comes to realize the current state in which he or she is and comes to desire again to be right with God. Isn't it interesting in the Word of God how that 
several statements, in fact, would easily be in a position to come to our mind at this moment. In Luke 17, verse number 3, Jesus said, Speaking of a brother, if he repents, forgive him. That's not hard to understand. And so even a person from whom the church has withdrawn fellowship, if that person will repent, if that person will earnestly and honestly desire to be right with the Lord, oh, how quick and oh, how excited it would be for the church to extend its heartfelt statement of forgiveness. But you see, might I say that God's forgiveness is certainly the thing that's most noteworthy. And the church would be happy to enter into that consideration as well. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse number 7, we have another recognition of those events. You might notice then that the church in Corinth was faced with a situation where they needed to withdraw their fellowship. There was a man among them living in fornication. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and following. And to that point, the church had not withdrawn its fellowship, and Paul rebuked them for it. You should have done this. When they finally did withdraw their fellowship, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that man made some changes. That man repented. And that man was such that he could be welcomed again into the open fellowship of that congregation. And what a blessed occasion. And Paul urged them, you welcome him back and you do it in love. Because that's what Christians do. And so it is that you and I know that withdrawing a fellowship can work. And we know it because God says it can. And we somewhat with excitement appreciate and pray for that time when that person who is the subject of withdrawal will make the changes in life and come to realize what's involved in it. Isn't it an amazing thing to contemplate the day of judgment? When perhaps in a given congregation there's a man from whom fellowship should have been withdrawn. And that congregation arrives at the day of judgment and perhaps the Lord as well as that man could say, but you never said anything to me. The Bible commanded you to withdraw fellowship, but you didn't. We would never want a congregation anywhere at any time to fall under some kind of a description like that. Because in love we would want to do everything in our power by the authority of the Scriptures to try to reach this person and to do it because we love them. And we want the etern eternity what's the best for them. One of the last things on that slide is a statement for each of us. The withdrawing of fellowship is an incredibly forceful reminder of the Lord's love for His church. This is what He says, I want done if some brother goes astray. And they won't repent. If some sister goes astray, but they won't repent, this is what I authorize you to do. And not only do I authorize it, I command you to do it. Because I want them reached. And I want them to come to understand what they're missing. As you and I participate in the extending of this withdrawal of fellowship, we realize our place in it. We don't eat with them, this person. We don't, in fact, have social conversation in that light with them. We don't, in fact, give them the impression that we in any way condone what they're doing because we urge them to repent. And we have conversation perhaps urging them along that line. 
as you close that slide with me. The withdrawal of fellowship is a matter that the New Testament has set before us and we give consideration that it's the Lord's will that it be done. As you and I close this particular lesson this morning, it maybe brings us to a reflection one more time on the strongest worded New Testament commandment. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition received of us. What a motivation that is for right living. If you as a congregation begin to see me go astray, you have the duty, the obligation to have conversation with me about that. And even with words of Scripture to illustrate your point, if I have no interest in it, if I will not repent, then ultimately you must withdraw fellowship from me. It's not an option. And as you do that, you do it not because you have something against me, personally, but you love me enough and you love me with enough consideration that that is the extent to which you'll go in the hope that I might come to my senses and that I might appreciate that you are going to maintain a pure congregation and I'm not welcome in the current state of my life. That's a circumstance each of us need to appreciate. God is so loving of us. He wants His children to withdraw fellowship when that's appropriate, to safeguard the purity of His church, and to highlight the sweetness of His efforts to try and win our souls. Today, as we close this particular lesson, it's another reminder of how special the church is, how honorable that estate of the congregation of the Lord's people is. Today, as we have studied these matters, I hope we've been reminded that the Lord loves His church, each and every one of us. He doesn't want anybody to be lost, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. He would like all to be saved. He does allow you and I, though, to make the choice and the decision. And may you and I, with sweetness and directness, always be faithful unto the Lord. Today, as we extend the Lord's invitation, maybe you've never become a Christian. Maybe there's someone in this assembly who is aware of what the Lord accomplished at the cross, aware of the church that He built, but to this point in life, you've never allowed the blood of Christ to flow over your sin-sick soul and wash away its sins. We would love today to aid in that. As you obey the gospel, you do that in belief of the Lord, repentance of your sins, confession of His name, and to be baptized for the remission of those sins. If you have known the walk of Christianity, and perhaps at some point you begin to think and to behave and act in ways that were unbecoming of Christianity, and that has only become stronger. And now you're living in a way in which your life is not in Christ anymore. You're only going through motions at best. And your life is not as it ought to be. Won't you come back to the faithful side of the Lord today? Won't you make repentance of those sins and make repent confession of them? We would be honored and so happy to encourage you in your newfound consideration of faithfulness. Today, if we could be of assistance in any of these ways, Brother Cale has chosen a song of encouragement. And we're going to stand and sing that and invite you to come if you would and need to do so while we stand and while we sing.